person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond the pet cemetery ain't human at all. The Indians knew that. They stopped using that burial ground when the ground went sour. Don't think about doing it, Lewis. Place gets holier, but the place is evil. Welcome to Now Playing's Pet Cemetery Retrospective Series. Today is Thanksgiving Day for cats, but only if they came back from the dead. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. A graveyard for pets killed in the road, built by broken-hearted children. Hosted by Arnie. They'll come over and pay me. Stuart. I'm sure things will be fine. I'm not. And Jacob. Scared you, didn't I? Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all the movies based on the writings of Stephen King. You're thinking thoughts that's not thought of, Lois. And join Arnie at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Stephen King's books and short stories. That is going to do something really bad! These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Thank you for introducing that colorful phrase into my daughter's vocabulary. Listener discretion is advised. First I played with Dad, then Mommy came, and I played with Mommy. Now I want to play with you. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. Today we're discussing Pet Cemetery. Two, starring Edward Furlong, Anthony Edwards, Clancy Brown, directed by Mary Lambert. This is Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing, who's back by popular demand. Stuart in LA. Hey, I'm sorry not the stud you are, Stuart, but this is Jacob. <laughs> Three years almost to the day after the original... The original, where Stephen King was on set every day and <laughs> demanded it was filmed in Maine and demanded it was his script, comes a film that Stephen King said, I read as much of the script as I possibly could tolerate <laughs> and made without his input Pet Cemetery 2, but Mary Lambert's back behind the camera. Five months pregnant, but back behind the camera. <laughs> Why yeah, I, would this be her next film? Why wouldn't they let her do something else? Well, I read that that first Pet Cemetery did better than expected. I guess it was a minor hit. $60 million is huge numbers for a horror movie. The, especially when they went in with low expectations. They were hoping for 20 They got 60 or so. I mean, they thought it was a major success. So a sequel was pretty much guaranteed, even if it then becomes now we're in Children of the Corn 2, Firestarter <laughs> 2 kind of territory. Yeah, that King is not involved. Many people may not notice that. I think that that is probably not the impairment. That all of the cast is dead might be an improvement. I'm like, hey, I, no deal, Midkiff. Great. Bring it on. Ellie was still around. She didn't die in that last one. Ellie gets a mention here. They didn't totally write it out. I know, and I think they propose a better sequel than what we're going to get. Like, I totally want that Ellie story. But let's look at what happened in between 
as far as Stephen King movies go. I mean, yes, we did have Misery, probably the high point. When will we get there? Yeah. <laughs> but also coming out in between was the first Sometimes They Come Back. The Lawnmower Man. Graveyard Ugh. Shift. <laughs> Graveyard Shift, Sleepwalkers. It's strange how in three short years, Stephen King's name can turn to shit when it's attached to a movie. Yeah. And Graveyard Shift is kind of appropriate. The director of Graveyard Shift got that job because he associate produced Pet Cemetery, and now he's producing this film. Oh, wow. And no, not filmed in Maine. This one, Georgia. Why? Because it was warmer, literally. Yeah, you can definitely tell it's not the same locations, and it's got a different vibe. It's surprising that this is the same director. It really doesn't have the same feel as the last movie. Here's what I would hypothesize. I think Mary Lambert really having her first major motion picture. I mean, she had big stars in her first film, but she didn't have the kind of budget and things that she had with Pet Cemetery 1. Came in and was a workman-like director, but honestly, the hand of Stephen King guided that. He was on set, he was making all the calls, but I don't think she's a strong director, and I'm not just saying that because the acting in the last one sucks, but yes, she didn't have anything else to do, and when it came to the MPAA arguments, I don't know that she fought the way you hear Romero fight and the way you hear other directors fight. I think because she was so untested, she has no ability to argue. She won't fight for her convictions because she's happy to have a job. And so I think when it came to this, they're like, you did the last one. Do you want to do this one? And here's your salary. And here's where it's being filmed. And here's your script. And go. And she said yes, because that was a huge success for her. But I don't think she's the type who would fight for Maine. I think it's telling. They did a whole lot of retrospective bonus features for Pet Cemetery 1. On Pet Cemetery 2, the bonus features were theatrical trailer, English 2.0 surround sound, and French <laughs> in stereo. <laughs> Uh, wow, English gets the 2.0, but the French... I don't know how that differs from stereo. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, I caught myself halfway. How is that different? It's <laughs> two speakers. That's stereo. <laughs> That's really weird. I don't know. Ask Apple with their new iPhone how it's different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Perhaps it's to say that maybe what she was interested in was telling more of her story, not being in Maine and not having Stephen King involved, certainly I would imagine she gets more creative control. And so this might be more of her vision than King's vision. Everything I've read, though, tells me she had no real part of the story, the screenplay. I don't even think she was consulted on it. It was written by Richard Outen, who I looked him up. He's still living in Hollywood and still like involved in certain films not often he did the story for journey to the mysterious island that rock movie the a lot of sequels <laughs> he did he wrote a draft of gremlins 2 and an unproduced uh, draft of goonies 2 so i guess yeah right pet cemetery 2 right gone with the wind 2 right everything 2 <laughs> He must know somebody, is my belief, with some of these people who just work every five years. Mm -hmm. You know who else worked on this script, though? Our good friend David Goyer. Oh. <laughs> he wrote an earlier draft. He was the sole screenwriter credited with the second draft. By the time we got to this final draft, he didn't have any screenwriting credit, however that arbitration worked. But, yeah, the Dark Knight Returns writer 
is here. Huh. But this movie came out when I was a freshman in college. I didn't have a car. I had a checking account that bounced more than Silly Putty. So I did not get to see this in theaters. I probably would have because I was big on Terminator 2 and this starred Edward Furlong. And I was really excited for this. I did rent it the weekend it hit video, but <laughs> never got to theaters along with most of the country. And yes, because it, I was in college and was seeing an entirely different kind of movie at this time, I would have been embarrassed to go, even if I had wanted to. And I don't think I did. It was out for a week and there was just no reason. Nothing impelled me to believe that it would be worth my time. Yeah, I don't even remember hearing about this one. I probably saw the first Pet Cemetery right around the time this one was coming out in 93. I just... I had no idea this existed until a few years ago, and I just I always hear people snicker about it. I never know what it's about. People just say, wow, it, it's something. And you mentioned Edward Furlong, but he was not particularly a strong draw of Terminator 2. I don't remember him being one of the best things about it. I actually remember him thinking he was slightly annoying, but he wouldn't have been a reason for me to want to turn up for this. But I did assume it was a movie about him. What's kind of strange, now that I've seen the film, I'm not really sure that he's a central character. It does make me wonder if he would have been put so front and center if it wasn't for Terminator 2. Like, was this always how the Jeff Matthew role was supposed to be? This was filmed in January of 92. So Terminator 2 had come out, had been a huge success. It wasn't like he went from Terminator 2 to this one without knowing the box office and fame he would hit. So mm -hmm. this was him at his peak of his career, I would imagine. I can't think it ever got hotter than the year Terminator 2 came out. Yeah, I think when you look at this plot, you feel like, yeah, he has been made central in a story where other characters have more of the terror. But I guess in order to explore that, we need to talk about the plot. Oh, there's one? Good luck. Yeah, just repeat the one from last week and, I don't know, <laughs> throw in some skinned rabbits. <laughs> Edward Furlong plays teenage Jeff Matthews, and Anthony Edwards plays his father, veterinarian Chase Matthews, who, thanks to Chase Masterson, I just keep thinking that's a woman's name. The two have relocated from California to Maine after Jeff's mother, famed actress Renee Hallow, died on set in an accident. Jeff is distraught and unable to let his mother go. In their new home in Ludlow, Maine, Chase starts a new veterinary practice, and Jeff befriends Chunky Drew Gilbert, stepson of the town sheriff Gus Gilbert, played by Clancy Brown. Gus is mean and abusive towards Drew, and in a rage one night, he shoots and kills Drew's dog, Zowie. But Drew knows of the Micmac burial grounds beyond the path of the local pet cemetery, and he asks Jeff to accompany him as he goes there to bury his dog. And indeed, the next day, Zowie comes back, but is meaner and still bleeding from the gunshot wound. Drew takes him to Chase for a checkup, and Jace can't find a heartbeat. More, the blood work shows the dog to actually be dead. On Halloween night, Gus is again out to beat Drew, but Zowie attacks the sheriff and tears out his throat. Drew and Jeff, for reasons, take Gus's body up to the Micmac grounds and bury him. When Gus comes back, he's actually nicer to Drew, but is mean in other ways. He rapes his wife and kills the town's high school bully Clyde, played by Jared Rushton. Finally, he ends up killing Drew and Drew's mother Amanda by causing their car to get in a head-on collision with a potato truck. Gus then buries Clyde in the grounds so he can come back. More, Gus entices Jeff to bring his mother back. 
Gus exhumes Renee's body and has Jeff rebury it in the Micmac lands. Chase is told of the grave robbery and confronts Gus, eventually killing the zombie sheriff and his mean dog. Chase then races home to find Jeff laying out his mother's clothes and preparing for her return. Renee does return where she kills the Matthews housekeeper Marjorie and then goes upstairs to be with her husband and son. Their quality time is interrupted by a homicidal undead Clyde who tries to kill Jeff. Jeff electrocutes Clyde, starting a fire, which causes Renee's mortician putty to melt. She screams for Jeff to stay with her with the plea, DEAD IS BETTER! But she burns up with the house as Jeff and Chase escape and move the hell back to Los Angeles as credits roll. Alright, I gotta say, because I've always just heard people say this movie is so different and just it's crazy the direction it goes in when it opens up with someone that might be like a vampire descending stairs in a dungeon i'm like oh wow this does really go in a different direction we're gonna get the origin of the micmac curse or something they're going way back in time but no it's a fake out i thought the same thing i was thinking about the prequel to salem's lot that he wrote called jerusalem's lot that involved vampires in the 1700s Again, I haven't seen this film since 1993. I really thought it was opening there. I remembered the plot. I did not remember this vampire crypt thing. We are now 47 installments into the Stephen King retrospective. We have seen a lot of sequels that have just (laughs) thrown out the source material and said, away we go. So yeah, I really, I was very worried and and relieved. (laughs) It is the biggest shock and relief that this is just Castle of Terror, a B-movie in which a character who's obviously fated to die is doing a take in a crypt. And yes, there her son is watching and having a little exchange before she gets fried by a electrified fence. Actually, it's not the fence that's electrified. They're the most unsafe studio production. They knock like a power strip into some water because the whole thing's in water and she just gets electrocuted while touching the fence. I think that connects the circuit. But we'll deal with an electric fence later in the film. Here, it's just unsafe carpentry. Yeah. Here's what I would say. You know, last movie, it was about a man who was terrified about losing his family to death. Here, I've got to ask, does Edward Furlong seem like he loves his mother (laughs) or that his mother would make a lot of time to spend with him, even if she were to remain alive after this scene? She let him come on set. But one thing you you always say, Stuart, is like when a kid gives a good performance, you credit that to the director. So I guess I got to credit James Cameron. I actually like Edward Furlong in Terminator 2. I thought he works well with Arnold, works well as this preteen bonding with the robot. Man, but this guy under under the different director, oof, it's not good. And yeah, I don't get that he really cares about his mom dying. Like the fact that the mom's going to come back. Like I kept waiting for that. The fact that this film goes so long before they actually bring the mom back is a surprise. And I'm shocked because I just thought Jeff was like over that. Let me play a different role here. I see Jeff as very in love with his mother. He fawns over her there. In a Freudian way? Because I get Freud at the end. Yeah, I, I remembered that coming into this, was there was some Oedipal complex going on. He comes over to his mother. He races to her when she has a break. His parents are separated. Not divorced, but separated, trying to work things out. I think that maybe that's part of the reason why he was so attached to his mother is that he doesn't get a whole lot of time with her. 
because he's staying with his dad, but he's on set. Edward Furlong is not good in this film, but from what performance he does give here, and I think he's strongest during this opening scene as for the entire movie, I think he's much worse. I get that he was in love with his mother, admiring his mother for being this Hollywood actress, and just completely devastated. His screams of mom here are as good, which... <laughs> You're not going to compare him again. I think you guys will agree with, even though you may not... <laughs> As good as the guy last week, I'll yes. agree. That's also an insult. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. liked his scream last week. You guys didn't. So here's the thing. I would love for that to be the case. I do think that if we had a director that was interested in exploring Oedipal themes and a Freudian obsession, why he can't let his mother go, that would have been really fascinating. I feel that Jeff Matthews is the least interesting character in this story, that all the people that are going to get buried or bury someone they love at the micmac grounds yeah he's the last one to do it and the least impacting what's so shocking is he's going to spend most of this film with a cat i swore that cat was going to be the first thing to come back in this film never dies well his family certainly does but we'll get there i don't know what you guys are complaining about i mean ralph singleton director of graveyard shift as i mentioned producer (laughs) of this film okay you're already off on, on a bad foot but yeah keep going Don't you guys get that, in his words, this is a real stand-by-me kind of movie? (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. Um, No? No, this is not a body I want to go see. (laughs) He says the other movie was about the parents. This one is told from the kid's point of view. So I guess it doesn't matter that Jeff actually has no real part in the plot. But it's his point of view, like the way Gordy in the book had the point of view seeing Mm. his friends. Mm. Here, Jeff is point of view. It's all Stand By Me, and we like Stand By Me. We do. Yeah, just like Stand By Me. Yeah. I just think it's the wrong impulse to bring in Hollywood starlet. I think that's a weird thing. I guess that was... The director insisting that it makes sense. It makes no sense to me why a major motion picture actress would ever be dating a veterinarian and why she would be (laughs) considering to go back to him is absurd. What's really weird is that she dies. They're going to bury her in Maine. We find out that the dad's not even living in Maine. He has to move his whole veterinarian occupation over there and open up a new business. Like, they're living in California. What's going on here? He's relocating his son and his practice to be in the hometown of his dead ex-wife. Well, they had a summer home there, so they had visited there pretty regularly. Do people get buried where their summer home is, though? Well, she's from there, too. I mean, the sheriff rudely talks about how they used to date, and the sheriff obviously has never left Ludlow, Maine. So she's being buried in her hometown, where she apparently has no living relatives, though. Her parents, anybody who would want her to be buried there, seem to be long gone. That's what I'm saying. That's what's so weird, is, like, there's no connection to Maine anymore. Like, there's no reason, I guess they have a summer home there, but there's really no reason for them to go back there. Jeff doesn't have any friends. Yeah, I don't like any of it. Like, and the, they'll try to bring her back in the Hollywood glamour and her Emmy dresses and all of this 
into later into the plot. And I just don't think it works. I just don't think it's even what's, what is interesting about this movie. So it's sort of a bad way to, to begin to insert these characters. How are you going to move beyond the pain when you're moving to the place where she's buried and you have no connection and you're all starting over and the town is full of bullies, including the sheriff? Does Clancy Brown play an asshole cop in every film he's in? No, he sometimes plays a bumbling military guy like in Starship Troopers. Oh, that's right. I mean, Clancy Brown plays a lot. He was the voice of Darth Maul's brother in the Clone Wars (laughs) cartoon. Clancy Brown is unescapable. Apparently, he's the voice of Mr. Krabs in SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah, he's a voice actor. He's an in-person actor. He was on Lost, the TV show. He's lucky I like him because he's everywhere. (laughs) He was in the first Tarantino script ever produced, Past Midnight. The guy just likes to work. And I think he's just one of those character actors that gets a lot of work. And he also has an imposing physicality. You know, the face. Here, he's really young. I believe this is probably the earliest film I've seen him in. So I barely recognized him. I guess I did see him along with maybe... No, Anthony Edwards did not return for Revenge of the Nerds 3. But Clancy Brown was in it. So Revenge of the Nerds connection there. But he's got this rubbery face. He didn't quite look right, but he is an asshole cop here like Shawshank. But man, what a horrible thing to be telling the kid of, I mean, his mom just died and telling the husband and child, yeah, I I took her to homecoming and prom the whole nine yards. His accent is not as good as Fred (laughs) Gwynn's. Not just the sheriff, you know, poor Jeff has to go to a new school. He brings his comfort kitten in his coat (laughs) and the bullies are there to snatch it away and threaten to put its head in like the spokes of their bicycles and cut it off. I mean, these are some cruel kids. They're making fun of the fact that his Hollywood mom is dead. Yeah, calling him celebrity boy. You bring your cat to school, you're a pussy. I mean, (laughs) that is kind of weird. And I thought for sure... That was going to be like the first resurrection we'd see in this film. I thought those bullies were going to kill that cat. I kind of thought so, too. The bully, I recognized the face, but I had to look him up. Oh, yeah. Big, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Big is where I know him from. I haven't seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids since theaters. But Big, where he plays Tom Hanks' best friend. Something must have happened to that kid along the way because he got an earring and became the bully instead of the friend. (laughs) But Jared Rushton, yeah. Overboard, he's one of the delinquent sons. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that in a long time either, but... It's on cable, like, every 30 minutes. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I watch it. (laughs) It's watching too much fucking Creepshow 3 stuff. But he's uh, possibly, other than Furlong, the most recognizable child actor here. I guess the bullies... Lackey Drew is the one who really becomes friends with Jeff. And Drew is hired by actor Jason McGuire, who he played Fat Teen in Forrest Gump, and he did this. <laughs> I saw that, yes. <laughs> oh. I thought maybe he would have been in Heavyweights or something. I was trying to think of other fat movies mm-hmm. with kid, fat kids. Yeah, he's sort of caught in the middle. He realizes that, I think he was the one that was always picked on, and now that there's a new kid, the Hollywood boy there, he gets to watch somebody else get the abuse he used to suffer. So he kind of enables it, and then after everyone leaves, tries to pal up to Edward Furlong as well. He plays both sides. 
But that's a pretty bad best friend to have in a small town like this. Yeah, but it is Clyde and his bully friends taking that kitty. That's how we get reintroduced to the pet cemetery. There's still the house there that Lewis and his family lived in. It looks nothing like the other house. And by the way, it did burn down in the last film. Well, no, that was Judd's house that burned down. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good point. Yeah, the Creed house is still there. We see a mailbox that says Creed, but no, it does not look like the last film because they're in a different state. Mm -hmm. And that was a real house they were filming in front of, not a facade. So it is a little bit weird with the whole kitten thing, but I thought they killed him. And Jeff punches that bully Clyde in the nose and... I'm expecting more of this. I'm expecting more Jeff is troubled. Jeff is getting into fights. That at least feels somewhat king, right? And Clyde, he's a little bit like a 90s version of a greaser. He's still wearing denim jackets in the era of grunge. So he's a throwback. He's got that one earring with the crucifix. He's definitely still living to warrant in the days of Pearl Jam. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't get a whole lot of threat. I don't think that... Teen bullies tend to be very threatening when you're an adult watching a movie, but I can understand how they would be threatening to a teen within the film. Uh, The relationship I thought was the most curious was the new housekeeper, who is, I think, some kind of fangirl of Renee and has decided to make her whole look identical to that and seems to be sucking up to the ex-husband by being a doppelganger. Yeah, Marjorie, the maid, like the maid that's always around. My wife walked in on this film like halfway through. She's like, oh, is that the dad's girlfriend? I'm like, no, that is the maid. But it should have been the girlfriend. I mean, it should have. Yes. A very interesting way to play this would be that, yes, he's falling for a replica of the woman that he lost. And and what does that mean? I feel like that is a relationship they would have explored if Anthony Edwards was a leading man. But because at this point, I don't even think he was on er no that i I don't that show wasn't even on for another couple years yeah so he's just the ex-nerd he's lucky to get this gig (laughs) i feel like they relegate him they just basically want to make this for teens and i think that's the wrong focus because well the only teen that's interesting is drew and his hatred for his stepfather and the relationship that's interesting is chase and his ex-wife you know i feel like they didn't want to do the dale midcalf thing again although anthony edwards a much better actor and just in general i'm going to cite it out now i'm not saying the movie is better but pet cemetery 2 better acting all around it's a better more lived in more naturalistic performances that are going on here I feel it's bigger acting. I feel like we get a lot of Fred Gwynn's in this film. Which, yeah. look, it's more entertaining. Lewis in that last one was so deadpan. Ugh. So I'll go for bigger. Yeah. I'll agree with the exception of Edward Furlong, who yes. for some <laughs> reason is playing at minimalist. He would have fit right in with last week's <laughs> yeah. movie. But I feel like the relationships are off because Clyde is the bully who's picking on Jeff, but he's absolutely no relation to Gus, the bully who's picking on Chase, and Gus is stepfather to Drew, who's Jeff's friend, and there's just weird relationships around that don't click for me. It's like, 
they played a shell game with who's related to who and how they all intermix. I do have a theory that Clyde is like a bastard son of Gus. Yeah, I could see that. I wish they'd put that there. Because later on, they're told you have to bury your own, and Gus is going to be the one that, oh, I assume, buries Clyde. He does. We see it, and he says something like, you're mine now, or something. It's really weird. I'm like, you're kind of breaking the rules. I wish they would have made explicit, yeah, that Gus was sleeping around. He has a really hot wife in Amanda, but if he was this Lothario who's around and had children all over the town or something, I would have really gone with that. That would have explained, even if it was something as simple as Clyde was somehow volunteering with the police or something, or he kept saying to Drew, why can't you be like your friend Clyde? Clyde's the son he wants, Drew's the son he has. If they'd made that more explicit, I'd have gone with it. And I think you could have made these a tighter story all around if you had just gotten rid of Drew and made... Jeff Drew here. I feel like it would be much more interesting if Edward Furlong had the dog that he's going to have to bury. And Edward Furlong has the problem with his stepfather. And maybe you write it that his real father died and that's why his mother has moved into this town. But I just don't want to care about Drew. Yeah, I think you're right. This is really convenient. And it's like, I'm going into, and I'm thinking of Revenge of the Nerds because Anthony Edwards is here, but I'm going into (laughs) pretty much the alpha-beta territory of archness. But imagine if Clyde was Gus's son, and Clyde killed the dog, and the cop's not going to investigate it or believe it or anything because he's covering for his son, perhaps even complicit in his son's crimes because they're both town despots, you know, something like that then there would be a reason for the dog to be killed. And yeah, it should be Jeff's dog. It should be he's lost his mom. He can't deal with it. And Drew needs to be there because somebody needs to take Jeff up to the cemetery. But Drew should be just the guide. Drew should be the Judd of this film, who is Jeff's only friend, who's an even bigger loser than Jeff, but knows about the Micmacs. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good star vehicle. I got to say that Edward Furlong should be leading this movie, and I feel like he's just observing other people who are doing things. Yeah, because Gus is, I think, the central bad guy. He's a jerk when he's alive. He's a jerk when he's dead. I do feel like the protagonist should have a closer relationship to Gus, and that would be Drew, who he's just kind of a sad sack. Like, I got to ask you, Arnie, though, because you have connections to Maine. A lot of rabbit skinning up there? Is that that like a popular pastime? To collect rabbits for some reason, keep them in electrical cages? Farming is big up there. My mother would tell me about how every year she'd raise a prized turkey and treat it like a pet and she'd groom it and play with it. And then every year at Thanksgiving, she'd cut its head off. (laughs) It, It was my mother's introduction to parenting. I think she parented the same way. But yes, there's a lot of farming. My grandmother had rabbits, and every so often, she'd have less rabbits and we'd have dinner. (laughs) I just think of lobster when I think of Maine. I don't think of rabbits, but Gus is a rabbit keeper, I guess, when he's not sheriffing the town. We had rabbits, we had goats, we had chickens. I mean, it's farmland. 
Yeah, I think that's how he makes an extra buck. You get the sense that this is not a thriving community, and I think the sign is like 10 cents a rabbit. We see him observing the rabbits having sex. We all know that they multiply, so I think that this is just a way that he helps make ends meet. It means enough for him that he's going to shoot his stepson's dog to keep the dog from trying to get into the rabbit cage, and that's what's going to kind of kick off the plot here. He's got the world's most unsafe electric fence. He's like plugging a... (laughs) three-pronged outlet into exposed wires sparking everywhere. I think that's more dangerous than the dog. I also think he shot the dog more because the dog was doing some coitus interruptus with his timing of going after the rabbits than the actual rabbits themselves. That's on him. If that's what distracts him, I the sex must not be that good. Did you see that woman? It can't be that bad. Yeah, her acting is pretty bad. I mean... <laughs> When she's not laying down, I do feel like Amanda is perhaps the weakest link. I'm still putting it on for long. <laughs> I'm not going to praise him. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all I'm saying is that this is where the movie becomes Pet Cemetery, right? We're like waiting for something to happen here. They've referenced what's the happened before and the Creed family murders and all of that. But once a dog is dead, we go, ah, it's going to be the same movie as last time, only instead of a cat, it's a dog. Pacing's even the same. We're at the 30-minute mark again when the two are taking their march to the Micmacs with the dead animal. Here's the thing, though. We did see a dog in the last film. That's what Judd first buried. I feel like they got to go with a different animal here. Go with, a, I don't know, a mongoose or something. That would not be scary. Can you, a mongoose? Uh, the demonic mongoose has come back to terrorize the town. It's scarier than like a gerbil or a hamster coming back. Could be one of the rabbits. How about an emu? Yeah, (laughs) come on, guys. Let's save some stuff for Pet Cemetery (laughs) 3. Well, here's the thing. Talking about the sequel, like, you mentioned that they talked about the Creed murders. Like, we find out what happened to Ellie. She chopped up her grandparents, and she's in the psycho ward. Like, I do feel like that's the better sequel. I want to see Ellie's story. See her go, you know, it's one of those tangential. Like, there actually is no Pet Cemetery in that story, probably. But I think it's a better story than just retreading what we saw last week. I don't believe that happened to Ellie. This is being told by the bully, and he's telling a campfire story i think that it has to go that way but i mean could it have been what really happened to ellie okay does it make any sense that ellie would go nuts and hack up those grandparents other than the grandparents were assholes not really i mean the ghost of zelda could have got to her yeah but i think that that's exactly it is like we hated the fact that that awful dad got away with pushing over gage's casket last week and you know just seemed to yeah if there was anyone we wanted to die it was him but yeah uh, so it's it's satisfying to think that the daughter finished them off but no i i'm with arnie i don't think that any of the story should be taken too closely as literal truth these are now whatever happened it's been turned into a campfire tale and folklore and it's just being repeated by kids so this is what happening how many years after a decade later no, just, I think they're going in real time. I think it's three yeah, years. Yeah, I think it's just a few years later. Really? Okay. Of course, that Ellie film wouldn't given us Jeff dreaming about his sexy mom with a zowie dog head, <laughs> which I is hilarious. Again, like a virgin. 
with the lion head. This is where I went. That is true, yes. There is a lot more silly music video shit in this one. I mean, that's the only way in which I would say that it feels similar to the movie last week. The King Touch was so heavy, I suppose. Now we're getting a lot more of that kind of weird imagery stuff. Yeah, that people rocking in rocking chairs, turning into dogs, and yeah, vague allusions to Oedipal complexes and bestiality. I mean, I guess whatever can get a rise out of you, because the basic story is pretty ordinary. It's pretty much a cut and paste of what we get before. The dog comes back, it's got red eyes, it hates people, and, you know, it kills these cute little cats that are multiplying in the vet office. They're not multiplying, they're just kittens. I mean, I think they were just found in the vet office and yeah, feral cats. them. And one thing that I read about this is these fake animals were so realistic that the Humane Society was called that they were actually killing animals on the set because somebody drove past and saw these dead animals and they got investigated and it was all the fake puppets. Well, they must have lit them bad in the film because they don't look real here. No, I I agree with that. And I won't say this movie is scarier than the movie last week, (laughs) but I do think the threat of a dog zombie is more intimidating. I mean, it's more ferocious. I mean, this thing... It's Cujo, right? Right. It it can rip uh, your throat open. And yeah, I never felt like Church could claw your nuts off or whatever. It just didn't seem like it was lethal. It was more like an omen of things to come. Whereas here, this could be the threat of the whole movie. If they wanted to. It could make Cujo 2 and Pet Cemetery 2 at the same time. But you know that Gus has got to get it. Like, he's oh, yeah. got to come back as a zombie and we'll see Zowie appropriately attack him and rip his throat out. Yeah, he was really going nuts. I mean, I realize abusive is one thing, but he's like... Why doesn't he want Drew to go trick-or-treating? Because he's already fat and he doesn't want him eating candy? No, he's grounded because of the dog thing. Oh, okay. And so his mother lets him sneak out despite being grounded. She's the birth mother. She's allowed to override Gus's rules. Yeah, but (laughs) Gus tells her, you want me to treat him like a parent, and then every time I lay down the law you override me so he decides the best thing to do to become a father figure to his son is to pull a grave marker out that's like a giant scarecrow post and beat his son with it (laughs) i like that zowie is the defender of drew you know they say in the last film you bury your own and the things you own come back to you that Drew buried Zowie. I think that Zowie is defending Drew is the right impulse. That for the rest of the movie, Zowie is kind of Gus's dog the way that Church became Gage's cat. Well, I see what you're doing there. The zombie demons band together. But I like that it kind of had an allegiance. And here's my number one question for this film. Like trying to figure out this plot point. Why do Drew and Jeff bury Gus? Why does Drew want him to come back? I think that they don't want him to come back. I think they're afraid of what will happen to them if it's exposed that they killed him. And so in order to cover up their crimes, they make him alive. But I don't think it's a mercy. But the dog killed him. Like, Well, yeah, good point. You're right. They didn't kill him. I don't know. But I'll say that when I was a child at that age, the dog killed him, but I brought the dog back to life. I'm the only one present. I would think I'd be blamed, especially Drew's blamed for absolutely everything anyway. So I almost understand the teenage need to cover up bad deeds. So 
if you put yourself in that like 14, 15 year old mindset, I could kind of go with it. I could go with it if it was an eight or a nine year old. Teenagers, though. But young teenagers. Especially with the wicked step parents. They can't drive. Leave them dead. Here's the other thing. It's like, yeah, Drew said he wouldn't mind if Gus was dead. He hated his stepfather. But Jeff, he's got to be thinking of this as a warm up. That if this works... Maybe he can do it for his mom because, you know, that mom is just sitting there in the graveyard. He could have done this at any time once he knew that Zowie came back. To know what's going to happen to a human being has got to be a reason to think to come back. Because when Gus does come back, you get mixed messages. Some things he's nicer and in some ways not. I thought this was going to take a big twist and it has... It was actually going to become like a, a funny satire almost because, you know, we see a nice dog or a nice cat. They get buried and they come back mean or a nice little two-year-old boy he comes back as an evil slasher. Then we bury Gus and he's this he's trying to Victor it up here with the humor. Victor, <laughs> that actor did much better last week, I thought, with the humor part. But Gus, yeah, he has these bonding moments where they're weird bonding moments like he's showing the mashed potatoes in his mouth but i'm like oh maybe they're saying if you're bad you're gonna come back somewhat good so now we'll see these two kids like start killing the bullies so they come back as good people like we'll get something weird like that (laughs) like i was looking for any kind of creativity in this film the fact that they're just gonna retread so much of that last one is a disappointment and yet, I will say the most upsetting imagery in any Pet Cemetery movie is watching Gus skin the rabbits, hanging their bloody carcasses up to L7's shit list. I think this movie has great music choices. They're 90s music choices, I'll give it yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like it's very alternative. I mean, it was appealing to youth culture of its time. And in this moment, I do feel like, wow, this is just really crazy. Can you imagine? I wish the acting was better in the part of the children, but can you imagine watching a father figure doing this, what your expectation would be, how you were going to eat that for dinner? I mean, see, I didn't have a problem with him skinning the rabbits because I don't know, you skin rabbits and you eat them. My my biggest problem is when he shoots Zowie, like that's very cruel. My biggest problem is when he shows the freaking mashed potatoes in his mouth. That shit's gross. Yeah, that that is the most horrifying part of this film. I was getting grossed out. But see, I the way I took it was he was selling the rabbits to make money. That he was now skinning the rabbits. What does he mean for what he's going to capable of doing to his wife, to his children, to the town? Well, we see what he does to his wife. I thought he kills her. He throws her in that bed, and I guess he just zombie rapes her. It's not actually a death scene. I was waiting for her to reveal that she had a bite mark in her neck or something, but that never happened. Yeah, I mean, it's a sexual assault. They cut away, thankfully. I didn't want to see yes. it. But she is not strong enough to be able to walk away from this relationship at this moment, and I fear for her life. I think that by not taking her son away, that they are on borrowed time. And I'm proven right later down the road. But we also have to have a subplot for Anthony Edwards, because he has nothing <laughs> to do in this movie. Much like his son, Jeff, yeah. And Marjorie, and the, that whole romance is just, they've decided not to follow up on the fact that he has a lookalike of his wife, now cleaning his house. Yeah, I don't think it's supposed to be a romance. It's just a maid that hangs out all the time. Yeah, okay. But anyway, he took some blood work on Zowie. It turns out that, surprise, surprise, it's the blood work of a dead animal. And so he's going to go talk to the veterinarian that looked after church? <laughs> yeah, we never saw this character last week, right? He was mentioned, so there's that continuity. You know what I was thinking of? On the 
donation feed, we're soon going to be discussing The Fly and The Fly 2. And there's this needless scene in The Fly 2 where the only actor from the original Cronenberg film would come back, has this expository scene. Well, here, I felt like we're there, which would make a lot more sense if this actor was in the last yeah. movie instead <laughs> of just name dropped. I just want to know why a vet has become a taxidermist. Like, he's got all these animals all over his place and, like, popping out eyes, giving some dog blue eyes instead of green. I think what to, we're to infer is the fact that he dropped out of being a vet by looking after church, by seeing this cat that didn't have a heartbeat and, you know, I don't know, maybe he scratched him or something that, yeah, it's made him only want to work with dead animals. And we have a kind of shocking but completely pointless moment of him, yeah, popping out the eyes of a taxidermied pug. I really wanted this movie to go to a weird place when I saw the taxidermy. It has gone to a weird place. I, yeah, agreed. <laughs> I wanted him to take taxidermied animals to the pet cemetery so they had different eyes and like <laughs> a reanimator kind of thing. Like you can make a jackalope come alive. Yeah. <laughs> Where you're just creating these abomination skin beasts. Look, there are so many ways they could have gone with this that are more creative than what they did. Yeah, I mean, we're all waiting for the mom to get dug up. I mean, I don't think it's any surprise that that's going to happen. I think that's not going to happen at this point. It's been so long. I thought that would be one of the first things they'd do. Seriously, you mention Jeff is getting the idea of burying his mother based upon burying Gus. I wish the movie would have driven that point home stronger because honestly, I remembered certain things about this movie. I remember it ended with the mother coming back, but from the 30 minute mark to like the one hour and 15 minute mark, I didn't think about the mother. It was all about Gus. Yeah, he dominates it partly because it's the strongest performance in the movie and partly because it's the character that's making things happen. And so, yeah, of course we're paying attention to that. And yet you've got to believe with Edward Furlong being on front and center on the poster and having that introductory scene with his mother, it's only a matter of time. Maybe you've forgotten it, but when he's talking to Drew and saying, do you think that your character matters, that when you come back, you're always going to be evil? I mean, we know what he's talking about and we know what he's plotting and, you know, we just keep waiting for it. And I wondered if it would actually be Jeff to dig his mom up and bury her because we do see Chase. He dreams about banging Renee. We get a titty shot here, but it's got Zowie's head on top of it. <laughs> yeah, And then it becomes really Zowie. That, I actually thought yeah. that was kind of creative in that it starts as a dream and then I realize, oh wait, there is a dog in my bed, but it's trying <laughs> yeah. to kill me. But Renee does say, I can come back. So I thought maybe Chase would be the one to do that. Yeah, because Chase had discovered Zowie was dead because of the blood results. But I would say during this period, it's a only slightly subpar slasher film with Gus killing the bully. I'm just fucking with ya. And then doing the car chase. The car chase is so abrupt. I was shocked they killed Drew. Yeah, and his mom. Like, they mm -hmm. die by getting hit by... I noticed there's a lack of semis in this one. Like, I... Mm -hmm. In that last film, you heard those trucks going by all the time, even if you were in the house. They had those sounds. I haven't seen a semi until someone needs to die here. And it's a semi hauling potatoes? Like, again, I don't know if this is supposed to be funny when we see, like, a hand sticking out of a pile of potatoes. <laughs> or if I'm supposed to be sad. She said that was a callback to Carrie. <laughs> There were potatoes and Carrie? No, there were rocks. That's like her digging herself out of the grave? Yeah. Huh, okay, I didn't get that. Yeah, I don't think they're trying very hard for scary here. I, they're just trying for weird. 
It feels like there's more expressionistic dreams and all of that, that it's odder. This movie has a more strange flavor, but scary this is not. I don't feel like it's diving into the primal terrors of what it's like to lose your mother or your stepfather or your pet. One thing I really will ding this movie, I'll accept the last movie didn't have the time or the inclination to work in the Wendigo and all the Native American mysticism, but I feel like there's nothing but time in this movie, and you have young characters who could be doing a book report, who could be out there investigating something about the land and a new place that he's never been before. This is the moment when we can really start to explore the evil that is in the cemetery, and it should have happened here. But I think because King's not involved, maybe this was never a concern for the director. Yeah, if you're telling me there's some kind of weird werewolf or Bigfoot or something out in the woods that helped create this burial ground, again, I'm looking for something different in this film. Yeah, bring it in. I I wouldn't mind that. They didn't have the money for that. I think it's They have naked women with a zowie head. Like I can't m- imagine it's much different than that. That's a freaking horn fluffer. That is not the actual woman. <laughs> but Paramount budgeted this film at two million less than the one last time. They had no faith going into this film. They had no money to pull off the Wendigo. But where this goes, I feel this movie is very strangely schizophrenic because Gus is also killed pretty easily when Chase finally gets a call that Gus dug up his wife because he wants to fuck her. Then he just kills both Gus and Dog real quick, and we still have quite a bit of movie to go. Yeah, I was wondering why Gus was digging up Renee, and then, oh yeah, they they call it out that he had a thing for her. They dated when they were in high school or whatever, and I guess he figures he could bang her now. I don't know, he's a zombie dead guy, why couldn't he just bang her dead? He wouldn't have to go through all the work of hauling the body up to the Indian site. It's more fun when they are cold and writhing instead of just cold. (laughs) And then we get a scene that I don't know, guys. Is this real or was this a dream? We have young Jeff standing by what looks like a swamp or something. And Gus is there holding the body. And they walk over to a single headstone, I guess from the graveyard. And it's implying that they're working together to bring the woman back. That was a dream? I took that as real because Gus had seemed nice to Jeff that night he was regurgitating potatoes for them. Jeff wanted his mother back. I have to take Jeff as insane. I have to just take it that he is mentally snapped when this corpse father of his friend is doing this and that it's Gus who's really the instigator to dig up the mother. What it is is they're at the grave to exhume the body and then Jeff has to be the one to bury it because we bury our own. Yeah, but you got to admit the setup is weird because they're it's like they literally walk over from what looks like the pet cemetery to what looks like the graveyard which are located entirely different. He did have to not only rob the grave but take that entire giant heavy tombstone with him and put it out there in the middle of the wilderness for no discernible reason. This film all of a sudden like goes on fast forward where it's whiplash inducing where yeah, Gus is going to kill Clyde and then they're going to dig up Renee's body and then they're going to go to the Indian website with both the bodies like it all of a sudden I it's, it doesn't even pretend to try to make sense anymore. It's just 
things are going to move towards that climax for reasons. Yeah, up to this point, I thought that this was a pretty marginal movie. And then when it hits climax mode, it's a pretty terrible film. I feel like almost everything that happens in the last 15 minutes is absolutely the wrong choice. You're kinder than I am to the first hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Because I feel it's a little bit ridiculous with Clancy Brown playing the clown there being a mild high point in an ill-paced, illogical, badly scripted film. But yes, once Clancy Brown is dead and it's just about this mother, the film goes off the rails with just music video imagery this is not a storyteller at the helm and there's no storyteller visiting the set a few times a week to guide her and so we're going to bring the mother back and we're going to have all these weird clothes and things draped around yeah marjorie's gonna dress up as renee like because she walks into the attic is the ghost making her do this like she goes into that attic and just puts on dresses she finds again weird for a maid i thought she was just weirdly obsessed with the superstar and thus wanted to be her you know there was a scene early on where she saw one of her old dresses and wanted to touch it and the kid slapped it out of her hand and said don't touch my mom's things here it's like oh he's he's away i i can sneak up to the attic to put it on but she's already there to kill her? Renee's there, and she's not all scarred up. I mean, we saw when Rachel returned, she had an eyeball hanging out or something, pus oozing everywhere. But Renee, who's been in the ground for quite a while, I think, nothing wrong with her. Let's keep in mind, Renee's been embalmed. I actually like the effect of the embalmer putty and the makeup melting away as the fire comes. I think that is suitably gross to remind you she looks normal, but she's actually a corpse. So she has all this makeup and putty and everything because she got burned where she was leaning up against the fence and it left a stripe down her face. I'm okay with her looking pretty normal, assuming she was in a cement vault and there's no critters that started eating her. (laughs) Yeah, good plastic surgeon because she's from Hollywood is what it comes down to. Well, no, I mean, a plastic surgeon isn't going to deal with a corpse. You just have a well-done mortician. Well, uh, metaphorically, yes. I just feel like because they didn't properly establish the relationship between Jeff and his mother. I mean, we get that a, a son would be upset about his mother's death. That is needs no explanation. But by not going any further than that, this is not really rich territory here at the end. It's just a lot of screaming and melting for the last 10 minutes here. The fact that Clyde, zombie Clyde's going to show up and Jeff's going to have a fight scene with him and have to electrocute him and blow his head up, which was kind of cool, but... It's just so crowded, and it's just, it's cacophonous noise at this point. Like, I don't understand at all how any of this is plot-driven. You know what I wrote in my plot summary, because I remembered it the way I wanted it to be instead of how it is? I wrote that at the end, and then I had to validate. I wrote that at the end, Gus, Clyde, and Renee were trying to form a zombie family and trying to kill chase and jeff so that they'd be out of the way so that the three of them could have their own like evil trio and jeff was trying to fight for his mother no it turns out gus is dead by this point and that's a mistake because i like my idea better yeah i agree again we've all expressed ideas that are better than this film yeah you want the character relationships to set the tone for how the climax is going. And it can be as outlandish and over the top as you want, but it needs to express how the characters feel. And because we didn't really know what those characters wanted and 
this wife is a complete mystery. It ultimately feels much more like the movie within the movie at the beginning than it does to Pet Cemetery. Also, Clyde is the wrong person to come back here. This needs to be Gus. Gus has been the bad guy throughout. Clyde was a very minor villain. He threatened to kill the cat, but he didn't. He just put the cat somewhere for the kid to find, you know? These are teenage hijinks I actually believe in, because I'd have bullies threaten to kill my dog. They never actually killed my dog. They let him out and let him run away, but they never killed him. So this is what I believe young high schoolers would do, and so I think it should be Gus fighting for the woman he used to date and who he wants to fuck, and... Clyde should have been the minor villain killed, you know, with 20 minutes left of the film. It just makes no sense for zombie Clyde to show up with no relation to the mother. There's no reason for Clyde to be there other than he's mad at Jeff. It's just bad timing. Yeah, Zowie and Gus get taken out too early and people I don't care about like Clyde come in too late. Exactly. Yeah. Even if you could accept that that's the way it is, I don't think they get a particularly exciting, riveting fight here at the end. I, no. <laughs> you know, you can shove an electrical cord into the climax, but I'm not feeling electrified. <laughs> and then the mother starts to melt. I do wish they went more Oedipal. My memory is they went more Oedipal. And something like he loved his mother. He was in love with his mother. He was obsessed with his mother. Something like that. Maybe throw in a girlfriend who's not enough, you know, a girl who's interested in him at school because she's not as pretty as his mother. But here, what we get is the mother just choosing to immolate herself. She makes no motion towards the door as she melts. And they decide to twist the iconic, sometimes dead is better, and just become dead is better, dead is better. All right. Yeah, and I didn't get that until reflecting on it after the movie. I, I guess because the irony isn't particularly stinging. But yes, they are playing up to the fact that last time we're saying sometimes it's better to let things go. And here the message is sometimes you need to be dead or or, or, <laughs> or something. Or something, you know. <laughs> if the character were suicidal, I think it would have worked better. If we had saw that this kid wanted to kill himself because he couldn't live without his mother, I think that would have solved so much here. But again, with teen suicide... Aimed in a teen movie, they're usually hesitant to put that kind of message in there. And I think that's what they were going for, but backed away for whatever reason. They should have gone Heathers with it. Yeah. What they do go with is really strange. This film ends with an in memorandum. Like, what is this? <laughs> All those worthless cameos. Don't you remember the fat kid and the bully and the fat kid's mom? Yeah, it's really tearful it, it, it says we never get over it we never get over death <laughs> well a bully i'd get over his death gus i'd get over his death and it's really weird it's like a early 80s or late 70s tv <laughs> series opening credits like little house on the prairie where the faces would fade in in these ovals over the scenes of the prairie and or gilligan's island how the faces popped up there you go yes. yeah it's very gilligan's island <laughs> Maybe that's what they were going for. I don't know. But we also have a helicopter shot. They spent that $8 million renting a chopper so that they could go over the Micmac burial grounds. It would have been so much better if there was something in the grounds. A Wendigo, a dog, something. A hand coming out of the ground to really rip off Carrie. But no. Ellie could really pop out. That would have surprised us all. I've come to chop your nuts off. <laughs> What would surprise me is if this movie gets a recommend, but Jacob Stewart, <laughs> do you recommend Pet Cemetery 2? Jacob. Not even the Ramon song during the closing credits is good. Poison Hard, ugh. 
Mondo Bizarro, not their best work. They only had a couple albums left after that one anyway. I mean, look, the acting here, strangely, a lot in common with that last film. Like, a lot of bad acting. And there's some of it is big acting. Clancy Brown, I could go with his goofy, over-the-top zombie thing that he's doing here. But to have your protagonist, Edward Furlong, again, being such a a blank slate, like, I don't know what he feels about his mom. I don't know if he wants his mom to come back. And that's the blame, you know, partially on the writing, because I don't know if that's actually in there. But a lot of that's on the actor, too. I don't get what he wants, except he wants to take care of Tiger, his little kitty. Like, that's the only real relationship I believe with him. This film is just a mess, though. There's nothing scary in it, except, like, Arnie and I agreed with Gus showing his mashed potatoes in his mouth. There's nothing really scary here. That last Pet Cemetery, yeah, it wasn't a great film, but that last 20 minutes was pretty good. Here, I feel there's a lot more gore and a lot more death, but it never gets scary, never hits those heights. Eh, bad storytelling, bad acting, bad horror. It, it's a pretty solid not recommend. Stuart. And I'll be a little nicer because I think this movie benefits from having low expectations. Having seen so many bad part twos of Stephen King's work that he had nothing to do with, you're prepared for something to be absolutely atrocious. Whereas last week, I really thought with the source material they had, they should have had a masterpiece and they got by on the good elements of the book and didn't really deliver a really good movie. Here, I think when you expect absolutely nothing out of but a rehash, there are interesting moments. There is Clancy Brown's overacting that's, that's enjoyable. There are things that I found worth sitting through or at least non-offensive and for a Stephen King retrospective at this point that's pretty <laughs> high that's that's pretty up there that that this is not such a big fall off of the original pet cemetery is saying something either about this retrospective or about this director or maybe about me but i really did not feel like this one was that much worse than what they had last week other than it didn't really contribute to the lore and the mysticism the way that I wanted them to with the Micmac burial grounds. But it's a very dumb movie. Don't get me wrong. It sounds like I'm, I'm wanting to recommend this or, or, or trying to give this a, a lighter red arrow. It's a red arrow. It's a bad movie, but on Stephen King terms, it's still probably in the top 20, 25 movies. And I'm going to give this a pretty strong not recommend, but yet, yeah, it's not Creep Show 3. Yeah. It's not Children of the Corn XX11. No, it's got stuff to enjoy. I enjoy Clancy Brown in this film, but the script is where I really point a lot of my problems. I mean, the director, we know she's no good, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we saw last week's film. I recommend that film. I stand by my recommendation, but the things that are wrong with it, I have to look at her. The casting... Every scene that I hated in the last film where I thought the actors were at their worst, in her commentary, she's like, oh, they're so good in this scene. She just doesn't know what good acting looks like. <laughs> Fred Gwynn, when he's breaking down, I killed your son. Yeah, I thought that was horrible. She's like, oh, Fred Gwynn really delivered here. <laughs> what did he deliver? A pile of shit. So she's a bad director. But when given good material, she can pull it off. She has good visual style. I love her music videos. But here, we've got a shit script with a shit director and a capable cast, except for Edward Furlong. I don't know when he started his substance abuse, 
but I might think it's around this time because he's giving a fairly stoned performance. But Anthony Edwards is trying. Clancy Brown is trying to carry this whole movie on his broad shoulders. I give them props for trying, but you just can't make it work when the story lacks any cohesion. So, no, it's a pretty strong stay the fuck away from this. This smells as bad as church when it came out from the ground. And with that, we're going to take a break from Stephen King. I think it's wise. We've done a lot in a row, and let's step away. What I'm excited about is when we return to this next year, we'll be returning to theaters. Not once, but twice. In February, we're going to get part of the Stephen King world I know almost nothing about, The Dark Tower. Yeah, it's amazing. That's finally actually coming and it's this massive thing i don't even know how we're going to do it because there's going to be television mini series that take place between the movies and it's a universe and i remember i read one of them and it was like a gunslinger or something yeah the first one's called the gunslinger i started reading the comic adaptation it didn't do much for me, but it's what some weird uh, apocalypse Western thing is my impression. It's an alternate dimension, which encompasses all of Stephen King's universes. I don't even know how the intellectual property rights are going to work so that he could pull in everything he does. There's characters from Salem's Lot and Randall Flagg and all these characters appear. Yeah, I thought there was a stand connection. And Stephen King appears in the story as Stephen King, a writer. I mean, it's gets weird i don't know how they're gonna pull all this off or if they're even gonna try but idris elba excites me i like him as an actor and i am also looking forward to getting into this area of the king universe but next year i mean we've got some more king to go through we are timing it so that when it hits we'll be at it and to be clear it is both the Tim Curry, Pennywise, Killer Clown TV miniseries from the 90s. And yes, they've shot a new, I think, the entire story. Originally, it was going to be a two-parter. Now, I believe it's just going to be one big movie to encompass one enormous Stephen King book called It. And in between that, we'll be getting to Silver Bullet, Thinner, and the adaptations from Skeleton Crew. I thought we already had It going on with all these killer clowns people keep citing in the woods. If you've been paying attention to the news. Could it be viral marketing? Can it be some elaborate scheme? I wouldn't put it past Hollywood. Are there any killer clowns next week, Arnie? I know that we're going back to Rob Zombie's world, and he's prone to put a lot of, uh, well, tragic people in smeary makeup and making them do degrading things. Spoiler alert, yes, but he opens the film saying, don't call me a clown. (laughs) But he's in the grease makeup. So yes, next week we go... It's October 31. We're reviewing 31. We're going to bring it out a day early for Halloween. In between, keeping the horror theme going. A horror film I've never seen because I was just too scared of Grace Jones. Vamp. (laughs) Yeah, there's not a lot of Grace in it, but uh, maybe that'll be what you're looking for. If you want to see Michelle Pfeiffer's sister and the kid from Meatballs run around in the sewer... Uh, This could be the movie for you. But I'm a Grace Jones fan. I think she does uh, an awesome job in the movie, and I'm looking forward to returning to it for that reason alone. If you want to hear that review and all of our bonus reviews, head to nowplayingpodcast.com and click the banner at the top of the page. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, fuck off, hairball. Listen. 
Yeah. Not one word about what we done tonight. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lois, was a secret thing. Women are supposed to be the ones who are good at keeping secrets. But any woman who knows that dog will tell you she's never seen into a man's heart. The soil of a man's heart, Lewis, is stonier. Like the soil up there in the old Micmac burying ground. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. We played, Daddy. We had an awful good time. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original short stories and novels. Yeah, that's a good story. A good walk. I'll take you up there sometime. Tell you the story, too. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, Cujo, and dozens more in our archive section. Place where the dead... Also on our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Let's go, Doc. I don't like this dream. You said you were dreaming. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. Come on, Doc. Don't make me tell you twice. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I think you're going to be just as happy as a clam here, Ellen Green. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Well, they have to learn about death somehow, not out there, Ms. Green. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to help you because you tried to help me. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I bought you something, Mommy. I bought you something, Mommy. Now Playing's Pet Cemetery series is edited by Arnie. Well, sometimes that is better. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Stay with me! The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The barrier was not meant to be crossed. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. God sees the truth, but waits. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. No brain, no pain. Think about it. The soil of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. Man grows what he can, 
and he tends it. Because what you buy is what you own. What you own always comes home to you. We're going to get the origin of the, I want to say Melmac, but that's uh, Alf, isn't it? <laughs> I kill me, and then I come back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what's the Indian group? Micmac. Micmac. Micmac Paddywhack. Yeah. Hanging their bloody carcasses up to L7's shit list. You know, when I saw Natural Born Killers in theaters, I knew the song Shit List. And I was telling people, oh, I heard that song. Where'd you hear it? Uh, maybe a Beavis and Butthead episode? Well, they wouldn't play Shitlist. It's too explicit. Thank you, Now Playing, for making me rewatch <laughs> this movie and finally answering the question where I first heard that song. <laughs> I'll accept the last movie didn't have room to de- deal with the Wendigo and all the Native Wendigo. Well, God damn it. <laughs> Spent that eight million dollars renting a chopper so that they could go over the Miramac, mir- so they could go over the mir, Mic-Mac. so they could go over the Micmac <laughs> burial grounds. <laughs> <laughs>